0: Please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We have a glorious text before us this morning. I would invite you, if you are able, to please stand. We do that to express our visible reverence for God's written word, separating it even from the word of the servant sent to proclaim it. And this morning we'll be reading together Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The title of the sermon is No Other Name. This is the word of God. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter Or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. As far the reading of God's word. Just as much, O Lord, as that crippled man needed your help, your power, and your strength to rise up by faith and walk, so also do we, even now, need the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would lift us up, that you would increase our faith, that you would heal our infirmity, that you would help us to glorify and enjoy you, and that through the reading, and especially the preaching of your own word, do that we ask now for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I'd like to suggest that the text that we are looking at today in Acts chapter 4 is as popular As it is practical, many of you have committed to memory Acts 4.12 and have leaned on that verse in answer to the question, are all religious roads equally valid in the sight of God? And similarly, we take from Acts chapter 4 our understanding of our relationship even to the civil government, that at the end of the day, it is more important to obey God than it is to obey man. But if you take a few steps back, uh, this chapter also, in some, in some ways, gets to a summary of the Christian life because it answers a very important question at the end of the day. Whom shall we obey day by day? We'll work our way through this long and beautiful text with three points. You have that in your outline, beginning with gospel opposition. Anyone going into war knows that a very important aspect of preparing for it is to know thy enemy. In the book of Acts, it really is in Acts chapter 4 that for the first time you get a genuine sense of who now is going to be on both sides. You met the apostles in chapter 1. You saw the beginning of the church form in Acts chapter 2. We begin to experience the ministry of miracles and healing, signs and wonders in Acts 2 and 3. And in Acts chapter 4, our chapter today, we meet our enemies. There are those who gather against the gospel. They are the very same people who would have taken part in the arrest, condemnation, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's the same crowd. It's the same people now interacting on the other side of the resurrection. The first verse of our chapter gives us something of the context of where we are at and when these things are taking place. They're in the temple. They're still on the outer porch known as Solomon's portico, where the lame man used to sit there near the beautiful gate, where the lame man was there healed. It's at the same scene. It's upon the same stage that the interaction we're looking at today takes place. And after this man is healed, Peter takes opportunity, literally while the man is clinging to him, to begin preaching. And as he preaches, this is every preacher's dream, a large crowd gathers Tens turn into hundreds, hundreds may have turned into thousands, all now crowding upon Solomon's porch. Not all outdoor preaching is so successful, but on this day, it truly was. And the large crowd that is drawn around Peter's preaching does not go unnoticed. We are told that all of a sudden, uh, the wolves of Isengard descend. That's my one for the day. That doesn't mean there won't be another. But there's a large crowd that descends upon Peter. As he's preaching, and then the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, we were told, came upon them. Uh, the language is forceful. It's not like they just showed up. Uh, they came upon them. They descended upon them like birds of prey. Yesterday, in just an interesting providence, uh, my wife and I both ended up driving past each other on the 78 in the afternoon. I was going west as she was going east, and there were, and I'm not exaggerating, I think thousands of crows over the highway, Uh, and there were so many crows, traffic was slowed down, going both directions. That's the kind of language the text uses. The scribes, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, descended upon them. The Romans did not tolerate riots or loud mobs, and so the responsibility of the temple captain was to keep things calm and quiet in the temple, So now this crowd, potentially, literally, of thousands of people gathering around Peter would be a notable cause for concern. But it's not simply the size of the gathering that has taken the notice of the temple police. It was their teaching in particular. I just find a little bit of humor in verse 2 that says that they were greatly annoyed. In a house with many children, that's a word you hear sometimes. They were greatly annoyed. Annoyed because of the word that Peter was teaching. And what was that word in particular? I like the way that it's summarized. Uh, is because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now we were told that the priests are there, the captain of the temple guard is there, but we're also introduced here to the Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees. How many of you know a little bit about them? The Sadducees were a theological minority among the religious elite in Israel. They did not believe in the bodily resurrection. The Sadducees were Sadducee because they did not believe in eternal life. That's as poetic as I'm going to get today. Remain calm. They were, in a certain sense, first-century materialists, believing that all you see is all you get. There is no resurrection, no bodily resurrection, no hope in eternal life. But these three groups, the priests, the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees, had power. And they had power to arrest Peter and John. And that's exactly what they did. But at the time of this arrest, we are told it is late in the day, too late in the day to convene a trial of the Sanhedrin. So things must wait until morning. Look at verse 4. This is great. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 4,000. Why is that noteworthy? Because in Acts chapter 2, we are told that the first preaching at Pentecost, the number was about what? five? excuse me, 3,000. Here, it has now grown to 5,000. This is 2,000 more people converted. It says uh, very clearly, uh, those who heard the word believed, And the number of men alone came to 5,000. This is remarkable. Not only that such a crowd would gather, but that a, a, a heartful response of repentance and faith is occurring. This is seriously blessed preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. It brings us to the next day. The crowd gathers. The crows have multiplied. In addition to the priests the captain of the guard and the Sadducees, we now have new faces. The elders and the scribes have shown up. You can only imagine in a world before email and phone calls and texting, somebody was running quickly the following night. Swift feet with bad news. Annas, the high priest, is summoned. Caiaphas, his brother-in-law, we are told elsewhere. John and Alexander, all these our blood relatives, member of the high priestly family. As they all come together, the group that is formed with the priests and the temple captain of the guard and the Sadducees and the high priestly family, this is what would be known in the first century as the Sanhedrin. It is the great council, a council of 71 people, 70 rulers in Israel and one high priest. It would be equivalent to something like our supreme court, or grand jury this is the highest court in Israel this is the most respected court in Israel and these are the people that crucified Jesus Caiaphas was the convener of the Sanhedrin but Annas the high priest had the most authority to say it a little bit lightly this is the best of the best of the best sir that Israel had it is the high watermark of political and religious authority. Among them are theologians, politicians, and military leaders, and again, I can't overstate it, <clears throat> who all opposed the gospel. The highest leaders in Israel not simply opposed and denied the gospel, they crucified the one who embodied it. And it's here we should pause, slow down, and just take an opportunity for a little lesson. The gospel was not and is not popular it never received and never receives worldly approval and very importantly the best of the best and the so-called brightest and arguably most powerful in history can also stand on the wrong side of it might does not make right in science does sometimes lie. In fact, it did to me uh, this morning. I woke up pretty early this morning and was startled by rain at 6 a.m. And it surprised me. I thought, is this going to be a rainy day? And so I actually took out my phone and looked at the weather app. And guess what it said? Zero percent chance of rain today as I stand there listening to the rain. And it was actually wet outside. I wasn't just dreaming this. So see, science can actually lie as well. Those who were responsible to be the bearers of truth in Israel were on the wrong side, not simply of history, but the wrong side of the truth as well. And the one question that they asked of Peter and John really gets to the heart of things. By what power or by what name did you do this? And this stages Peter's next sermon, his defense, and our second point, gospel proclamation. The question again, by what power... Or by what name did you do this? Look at the careful wording of the question because it, it, it assumes a meaningful fact. And the fact is, something happened that day. Say it more largely. Something happened in history that could not be defined. Defied. A man that was born crippled, whose whole life had been a tragic, dramatic display of the curse on that day was healed publicly. That it had happened was undeniable. How, why, and whose name it happened, these were the questions to be answered. And so Peter begins to speak. You can't miss the beautiful highlight, full of the Holy Spirit. Peter begins to speak, if not preach, such is the nature of all effective preaching. It is guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, any preaching without the Holy Spirit simply falls to the ground, as you know. But Peter, on this day, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told his disciples in Luke Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict, as Jesus had promised. That his spirit would come. Acts chapter 1, when it does, that they would receive great power and they would proclaim the name of Jesus locally and far away. Now we see it truly happening. A mouth of wisdom has come from the Holy Spirit. And Peter opens his mouth and begins to proclaim, verse 10, "That is it is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that this has been done. That's a mouthful. Not simply the full name of Jesus, but the attached condemnation whom you crucified. Several things stand out here. As with the last sermon, the last text, Peter makes it clear that it is not by his or John's power or piety that this man has been healed. It is through the power and the piety of Jesus of Nazareth that this man stands well and whole. And to say that name that way, Jesus of Nazareth is a code word. It's a way of highlighting the humiliation, the shame, the rejection that attached to Jesus. The people he's speaking to would have despised Nazareth almost as much as the Savior who came from there. Remember again, these are the very same people who took part in his crucifixion. And part of their justification in doing so is that Jesus came from where? Nazareth. And what good thing comes from Nazareth? Nothing. This is the kangaroo court that sentenced him to death. These are the ones we were told in the last section who preferred a murderer over the author of life. And so Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, mouth full of gospel proclamation, notices that, notice that he pulls no punches here. He even quotes from the Old Testament in a rather piercing way. He quotes from Psalm 118 to show that they were not only guilty, that in their action, they had actually fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. If you go back and read Psalm 118 carefully, uh, there's something neat to observe. In Psalm 118, it would appear that the stone referred to that is despised and rejected is Israel as a nation. They are that stone, that chief cornerstone at that point in history upon whom and upon which God would build his kingdom in the land of Canaan. They were the ones whom the world had rejected. It was the nations who were guilty in Psalm 118 of despising and rejecting Israel And it was the nations whose unbelief God would judge. But now, at this gospel moment, Peter uses Psalm 118 the same way Jesus did in his teaching ministry. It was Jesus, not Israel, who would ultimately be despised and rejected by the world. It was Jesus who would take the place of his people. It was the one who would fulfill the plight of the many not just by the nations, but even by his own people, he would be despised and rejected. And they too, this is Peter's point, would be judged for their unbelief. But Peter holds out hope. Hope for them and hope for us. Gospel hope that even the most vile of offenders can be forgiven. Even a group as guilty and rightly condemned as the Sanhedrin, who not only uh, allowed Jesus to be crucified, who orchestrated it and applauded it, even they could be saved. And this is beautifully encouraging. For if these people can be saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, so can you. And so can I. The most vile and wretched of offenders have hope in the name of Jesus. That brings us to verse 12. Many of you know it. If not, you should memorize it. I'll help right now by reading it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> I was pausing so you can memorize it. Are you done? That is one of the most politically incorrect statements ever made. It settles the question that the Sanhedrin asked Peter. It settles many questions that the Sanhedrin of the world constantly asks Is Jesus the only way? Are all religious roads to God equally valid? Does God actually care what we believe as long as we just believe and practice something? It makes it very clear God cares about what we believe. All religious roads are not equally valid. In fact, all of them are a dead-end road unless the road is Jesus, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other name of salvation. Acts 4.12 is the John 14.6 of the book of Acts. And while there is no other name by which we must be saved, the beautiful point is, there actually is, beloved, a name by which we can be saved. That is the real point of this sermon. There is hope for the Sanhedrin. There is hope for the cripple. There is hope for the crowd. There is hope for us. But apparently we're on fire. Our hope is found in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just going to keep going. You can deal with it. The one the world despised and despises is the one the Lord has chosen. He whom the world rejected, who was cast out of the earthly temple, has now been exalted at the right hand of God. And what does that language mean? But the highest place of honor in the universe. Do you see the irony? The one that the world despised and rejected. Has now received the highest place of honor, not simply in the world, but in all the universe, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This makes Jesus the beginning and the foundation, according to Peter, of a new temple. That's why he's called the chief cornerstone. A new temple is being built, far finer and better than the earthly one, a heavenly temple. An eternal temple of which Jesus is the chief and new cornerstone. And what does this show or prove? That the Sadducees were wrong. That there is actually a resurrection of the dead. That the Pharisees were wrong. Jesus is actually the savior of the world. That the Sanhedrin, the 70 plus one, the rulers and leaders of Israel and the high priest all together were wrong. They crucified the Lord of glory, but God has raised him from the dead. The good news that they opposed is now what the apostles and the church must proclaim. And what is the good news to boil it all down? Jesus is raised from the dead. That is the best news of history. It is the undeniable fact of history and it leads to gospel celebration, which is our our final point. I actually have it written down here. Time requires me to get to the point. It seems rather fitting, because obviously Satan is not like this sermon. But hopefully you do. If the question is, whom should we obey? I want to attempt a short answer, and, and make sure I've got your attention here, okay? Focus on me. If the question is, whom should we obey? This is the answer that I want to give you. The one we celebrate. I'm going to say it again. If the question is, whom should we obey? The answer is the one we celebrate. The council, we were told in our text, discerns three things about Peter and John. Three things we were told about them. One is that they were bold. And why were they bold? Because the resurrection of Jesus made them fearless. And it should have a similar effect upon us in the face of the world. The resurrection should make us fearless, unafraid of what the world can do to us, and in a certain sense even unconcerned about what the world could take from us because of the resurrection. Second, Peter and John were academically unimpressive. Tells us in our text, if you look at verse 13, they saw not only the boldness of Peter and John, but they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. My daughter happened to catch me studying, looking at the text yesterday, and on the side of my Greek translation, right beside this verse, I put a smiley face, and she said, Dad, why is there a smiley face besides your Greek translation. And I said, well, look very carefully at the word for common that's here in the ESV. Do you know what the Greek word is for common? You're going to love this. Idiotas. (laughs) (laughs) Idiotas. That's what the text calls Peter and John. They were uneducated. And then the word common is idiotas. But when you think about it, it's a little bit funny. But it also, it really... Gets to the point, beloved. In the eyes of the world, what are we? Idiots. What are we called elsewhere? Fools. That's how the world sees the church, because that's how the world sees the gospel. There is no neutral ground. You either believe it, or you think it's idiocy. You either call it wisdom, or you condemn it as foolishness. But in spite of the fact that these uneducated idiots uh, were exactly that in their eyes, uh, they were nonetheless bold. And not only were they bold, they were convincing, because on that day, 2,000 people, at a minimum, believed. And there was something else that these men uh, could not deny, the council could not deny about Jesus, and it might actually be my, fav- my favorite verse in the whole section. It's verse 4. I'm sorry. It's not 4. 4. <clears throat> it's at the end of 13, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. How? How? Is it simply because they had seen them in the crowd with Jesus? Is it was was it because uh, that that somehow something of him had rubbed off on them? Is it because they were already being conformed to his image? And that resurrection hope that made him unashamed and unafraid had begun to take them over. And there these men stood, common, uneducated folk, yet fearless in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, the best of the best, all the authority of Israel combined. This is beautiful language. One of the most wonderful things that can be said about a Christian. You know, I can tell you've been with Jesus. There's just something about you that stands out. It really is beautiful language. And there are some things that cannot be denied. Verses 15-17 is almost like a little parenthesis. The Sanhedrin decides to take a break. It's as though they kick Peter and John out of the courtroom to talk amongst themselves and to figure out what are we going to do they have to come up with a plan this is like their deliberation they could not deny the healing of the crippled man verse uh, 14 makes it clear that he was standing right there the man was likely in prison with them overnight when you think about it even that is a beautiful providence if you slow it down Uh, the crippled man in prison with Peter and John the same day that he's healed the first day of his life that he can walk and he's led in custody into jail. Along with Peter and John, who just hours earlier in the name of Jesus had healed him. And what would you say of that? Is this a hard providence? Is this a kind providence? Is this an occasion to complain? Is this an occasion to rejoice? What sort of disposition do you imagine this once crippled, now walking man might have in jail on the first day of his life that he can actually walk. I doubt he was complaining. In fact, I think he might have actually found something rather beautiful and poetic about it, certainly something uh, very biblical to us. Already, having been identified with Jesus under blessing, he takes up his cross. Whether he understood it or not, Already he is being conformed to the image of the one in whose name he was healed. This is why, beloved, we can understand and ought to understand that suffering for Jesus truly is a privilege. One can only wonder what that night was like for him. Elsewhere, in the very same book of Acts, we see imprisoned Christians, apostles, the people of God, and what are they doing overnight, even after they were just beaten? They are standing and they are singing, rejoicing in the privilege of suffering for Jesus' namesake. It's pure speculation, I admit it, but I doubt this man slept at all that night. Your whole life, over 40 years, bound to a bed, lame and helpless, and on this day you can stand. There would be a mat or a floor in a jail cell. I hardly doubt he was upon it. And either way, while he stands in prison, he is perfectly free and whole in Christ. Moments later, verse 18, they're called back before the council, and I I love this part. This is what you call a weak hand. I don't have any great cards here, but I'm just going to throw stuff at you. You've seen this uh, tactical maneuvering all the time. They commanded them, charged them—it's legally pregnant language. They legally threatened them not to preach or teach in Jesus' name. You can almost picture Peter and John looking at them like, "Right, <laughs> like that's like that's going to happen." But let me pause and ask you, however, uh, what would you do here—the seventy plus one, all the power and authority of the nation in which you reside, legally threatening you to stop speaking. In the name of Jesus, what would you do here? How would you respond? Here, here's the question. Would you obey God or obey man if put to the test? Verses 19-20 give us the proper response. It comes, in a certain sense, rhetorically. Peter asks whether it is better to obey you rather than God. You must judge. And he is right. They will. But we cannot deny the truth of what we have seen and heard, we must obey God. We must obey God rather than man. Some years before, in Plato's Apology, he tells the story of Socrates, This will surprise you perhaps because he's known as a philosopher, but he was actually arrested and told to quit studying and teaching on subject matters related to God. And this is the answer that Socrates gave many years before Peter and John. Socrates said to the authority, I must obey God rather than you. Peter and John likely never read Socrates or Plato. They were, after all, uneducated idiots. When else can I say that from the pulpit? And yet, they were witnesses to the resurrection. If Socrates could say... I must obey God rather than you. How much more a Christian? How much more the Christian? No matter what the cost. They saw his life and heard his words. Peter says it well. We cannot deny what we have seen or heard. They were witnesses to the resurrection the truth they told was deeper far more beautiful and life-giving than anything socrates may have said poetic flowery and philosophical as it was the word that the apostles were now proclaiming was life-giving life-altering literally life-saving and this beloved is what the apostles actually had to celebrate the resurrection of the jesus of jesus from the dead was not simply for them, it's also for us. That is something we celebrate. It brings salvation. And I want to up the ante on what you think that means. For too many years, I thought this way, and I think many Christians do, that being saved simply means going to heaven. That's true. But it is so much more whole than that. It is so much more full than that. In our text, the same word used for healing the man uh, is the word used in verse 12 for saving souls. And the point is this. The salvation in view is not simply not going to hell and going to heaven instead. It's being made whole in the presence of God. It's tasting of the eternal life, which God gives to those who have faith in Christ Jesus which comes not simply uh, with the fruit of justification, but the other benefits, our sanctification, our adoption, and our glorification, and bodies. A point I made last week, which I don't know how excited you are about, but it's because of the fact we're stuck in these. But this man on this day had as close to a resurrection body as anyone on this side of the veil, arguably, have ever known. If you go back to the earlier section, he is described as having perfect health. That's part of our salvation, beloved. It's not simply longer life. It's even more than just eternal life in the sense that it is whole saved, glorious, adopted, justified, sanctified life. That's what it means to be saved. The man standing beside them spent 40 years under the curse, now stands there in their midst as living proof of the resurrection, indeed, a preview of things to come. In that name that saved that day, beloved, and added 2,000 souls to the church, the same name continues to. It's still life saving, it is still cursed. Reversing. It is still a name not only to celebrate, make sure you capture this point, it is also a name to obey. And so, with that, I want to ask a few questions and offer a few lessons in conclusion. Number one, are you trusting in any other name? Many people do. Many people still believe the polite, politically correct nonsense that all religious roads are equal that god doesn't really care what you believe as long as you believe something that is to trust in another name and peter made it very clear and jesus made it even clearer so you cannot call jesus a good guy when he said that there is salvation to be found in no one else but himself Some are trusting in wrong religions. Others are trusting simply in their own name. I'll get there myself. God will judge me based on my own goodness. And that'll be enough. And the point here, again, is that people are deceived all the time. All around us, false prophets, false religions, materialists like the Sadducees abound that tell us all you see is all you get. And I've grown tired of the line, science doesn't lie when it did to me this morning. But the word of God never lies. So whom do you obey as regards the matter of your soul? The entirety of your life? The wholeness of your life? Who is your only hope? Who is your only comfort? The challenge, It's my second point, the challenge before Peter and John in Acts 2, as I said in the introduction, it really is the story, not simply of the church in history, but the everyday story of the Christian life. The everyday story and struggle of the Christian life comes down to this Whom will you obey today, God or man? The world, the flesh, and the devil? Or the Son of God, exalted and glorious, or heaven? Every day we are forced to decide if we will obey God or man. Arguably, hour by hour, we are stuck on the horns of the same dilemma. When we go to bed at night and no one else is watching and our computers are still on, who will you obey? When you have opportunities throughout the day to cheat in one fashion or another, whether it's in your work or in your vocabulary or whatever, whom will you obey? When the world threatens us, not simply uh, with jail or physical suffering, but perhaps social awkwardness, discomfort, and rejection, whom will you obey? Will the 70 plus one intimidate you? Or will you stand for Jesus, even if it means in your standing you were walked into a cell? How shall we respond? Whom shall we obey? I think the text actually makes it very clear. The one we should obey, the one that you should obey, beloved, every day of your life is the one we celebrate today. The one who not only died, but rose. Jesus of Nazareth, who is also the author of life. Given that name that is above every name, that has power over every name and every authority, for there is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other name by which we can be made whole. And that's why Jesus deserves our allegiance. Let's pray. Lord, in a world of confusing voices that could often leave our minds cluttered and overwhelmed, we thank you for a clear word. Jesus gave it to us in a certain sense, making it very clear that if we are lost, he is the way If we are confused, he is the truth. If we are dead in our sins, he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The apostles proclaim the same message, that there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted and glorious, and that by faith we have eternal hope in him, eternal life in him, and eternal wholeness in him. And so I pray for my friends who are here this morning, Lord, that none would depart in unbelief, that none would find safety or contentment attempting to straddle the fence of belief and unbelief, but rather, Lord, that you'd help us to make our resolve and our stand clear, and that we would stand firm for the things of God, and even if at times it should cost us, whether in one fashion or another, Lord, help us to obey God rather than men. And in the daily struggles of our life, when no one is watching, oppressing, or persecuting, even then, help us to obey God rather than the flesh. And In all these things, we would give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.